This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So I'm going to uh, introduce Derek Featherston. He is from um, Canada, has come all the way to tell us all about designing for context. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. So, how many of you have children? So for those of you that don't have children, were you at one point a child? <laughs> this, this is my, my son, this is our first son, this is many, many years ago, he is now 12, and he is about 18 months old here, and this uh, moment of joy was kind of perfectly captured in, in this, and in this photo, and I, I love, Looking at this photo, I love looking at other photos of, of my kids. And I love capturing moments of joy like this. And I think that, that as uh, design professionals, we kind of try to create the same kind of joy with the things that we create. And, and that's what I want to talk with you a little bit about today. Now, those of you that have children know about moments like uh, this, where this wonderful child did this. Uh, this is our, our microwave, and he took a stack of paper plates and a stack of napkins, and, and I think really thinking outside the box here, he took the recipe for chocolate chip cookies and he put it in. <laughs> I think he was thinking that he'd get cookies out of it. You can actually see the, the glowing embers uh, right kind of down here, the glowing embers. Uh, wonderful, wonderful moment. We had to get rid of that microwave and get a, a, a new one because everything came out smelling like burnt paper. Uh, but we have moments like these. Not everything is, is rosy like he was, joyful in the box. Um, another wonderful moment. Uh, this is uh, a quarter inside my now 17-year-old daughter. She was about seven at the time. And we spent most of the, most of the evening in the, in the emergency room. We had wonderful... Uh, conversation. She's like, how's it going to come out? <laughs> I'm like, well... I asked her, we asked her, how did it get in? She was, she was, the doctor actually said, how did, how did this happen? And she's, I don't know. <laughs> it was in my hand, and then it was in my mouth. We, we have these moments. These are the kind of moments that, you know, we'll never forget. They're great comedic relief for, for us in here. Um, difficult times as a parent, challenging. And, and, you know, by all counts, if this is the most difficult that it gets, uh, you know, she was seven at the time, so that was about as difficult as it got then. She's now 17, so, yeah, you know how that's probably turned out. Um, but we have wonderful moments, we have difficult moments, and, and that's something that, that we can kind of, uh, kind of embrace. And, and despite all the difficult things, this is, so my wife and I have, have four children, this is two Easter's ago, uh, where this spontaneous thing happened, where uh, the kids on, on Easter actually got together that morning and they said, let's, let's do Easter eggs. And I don't know if you, if you can see this, but, uh, our 17-year-old, she's now 17, uh, is on the far right. She has her arm around her brother. This, this doesn't happen, like, ever. 
So this was a this was a big moment, and it was it was wonderful. And this thing that we tried to capture, and and, of, and there's our uh, our other son. He was about um, I don't know what he was. He was like just over a year at the time, and he's you know, just I love the way that he's he's looking up, and it's this perfect moment that we've that we've captured here. And you know, my my wife and I we think this is this was a wonderful moment. How do we make that happen again? And so the next Easter we were like. We're hiding in the kitchen, and we put all the eggs out, and we set out all the colors, and we're just like, get, get into the pantry, and let's watch. They're like, nothing. Didn't even, didn't even go near the kitchen. They walked in. They saw the eggs. They're like, yeah, we want to watch TV. We're not, we're not really into this. Um, and, and so we keep trying to come up with these, these ideas as to how we can create these experiences as parents. And, and, and I think that has uh, a lot to do with, with the kinds of things that we're trying to do in digital. We're trying to trying to find out what it takes to facilitate a great experience, something that we can recapture over and over and over um, and, and avoid the things that we don't like. Um, this, this moment uh, with, with our son was, was really, really incredible. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we've kind of learned as parents is that uh, creating these great experiences really very heavily dependent on context. There's so many different things that are happening that go into creating, uh, to creating a moment like that, that, that you can capture and that you can, uh, that you can see and enjoy and remember over and over again. <clears throat> so let's, let's bring this into digital. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a tech geek, and this is my very, very first smartphone. Uh, do you guys even know what that is? Some of you might. That's a Blackberry. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, <laughs> But, but this was in, in 2005. It was like a, my, it was my connection to home. I was away at, uh, at, uh, at a conference in another city, staying with a friend, and she took this photo, and I sleep with my phones. Um, I still sleep with my phone. Does anybody here sleep with their phone? Is anybody here sleeping with more than one phone? I sleep with my phone, I, I keep it on my chest because not only is it my phone, it's my alarm clock. And, and it's, it's, it is my thing, like it's, I sleep with it because it's a connection to, it's a connection to home when I'm on the road, um, it's the first thing that I check in the morning, which I totally shouldn't do, but I do it anyway. Um, but, but it's also my alarm clock. Do you, do you how many people uh, set multiple alarms on their phone and it, so, I can't even tell you, but my, my alarm screen, this is, this is bad, but I'm gonna share it anyway. Uh, I will tweet this, but it is like pages long <laughs> because I don't trust the thing, right? I don't trust it, so, and I don't even set it for like, so 303, 343, 5.45, 5.45, 5.45, 6 o'clock, 6.15, 6.30, 7.05, 7 7.30. Like, it's just, it's all the times. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I set alarms. I set timers because um, here's this, this thing. I have this switch on the side that lets me put it into silent mode. And I panic every time. I'm like, does silent mode mean I'm not going to hear that alarm? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. I really don't, and so I set multiple alarms with multiple schemes, and I set a timer because I just don't know. 
Now, that's like a really crappy experience because I've had an iPhone for a very, very long time, and I still don't know how well the alarm works and whether it's gonna wake me up or not, right? Now, sometimes it's just because I'm tired, and I'm like, I'm really tired, I need to set that alarm, I've gotta get on a plane, so I'm setting it for 4.07, 4.15, I'm gonna set a timer that's gonna go off around 4.22, whatever it is. So there's, there's that part of it, too. This, this was my very first iPhone. I, 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 uh, we, we didn't have them in Canada, and this, this was a thing, so the very first time that, I, that they announced that there was, not that they announced it, but there was a software unlock available and I could connect it to my network in Canada. I was like, yes, next conference I went to and I'm speaking in, in uh, Dallas, uh, in, in Texas, and I get off the plane and I get into the cab and the guy's like, hotel, where are Apple store, let's go. And so I walked into the Apple store and I walked in and I reached into my pocket and I pulled out my 10,000 Canadian dollars and I put it down on the counter <laughs> And I said, give me iPhone. I've wanted that thing from the beginning. I've, you know, like I've bought almost every generation that's been there. I'm already committed to the next version. I, I know I'm gonna buy it. I just, I can't help it. I love, I love my devices and we all kind of love our devices, right? They are, they are shiny, they're new, they have new features. We get into that, it's pretty awesome. And, and we love them for good reasons too. I'm gonna share with you a, a moment here. This is. This is our son when he was, uh, he was 14 months old. And I want you to watch this. I, I love, uh, this is one of my favorite videos of all time. Um, did you see that? 14 months and that boy is swiping already. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm like amazed by this, by this stuff and how, uh, how easily he just gravitates towards tech. Um, let, let me, let's let it keep going here. Who is that? Me. Is that Baby Carter? Me. Me. Good job. Me. That was the very, very first time that our son said the word me and that he had that self-realization that that was him. Every other time we did a video, a selfie video, it was always about that being a baby. And that was the first time that he said me. And I, if I wasn't so addicted to my phone, I never would have been able to share that with my wife, to share it with you, anything. And so I'm kind of okay that I love my device so much because it enables things like this to happen. Like any good dad, I'm like, that was awesome. Let's see if he'll do it again. Can you say Carter? Is that Carter? Yep. Say me. Dad. Say me. Dad. Come on! <laughs> it was really awesome the first time. It'll be even better the second time. We, we often get so enraptured by these devices that we get really caught up in that as designers, as developers, as, as uh, tech-centric uh, tech people. We get really attracted to these devices and, and it becomes a thing. And, and we often think of context as being about that device, right? The, the canonical case that we've been talking about for years or, or that has kind of made its way around is, oh, somebody's on a mobile, that means they're running late for the train, right? And, and that was like the use case that everybody was trying to solve. And, and 
the context really isn't about that device. It's really just one piece of it. Um, when, you, when you look at context being all about the device, you do things like this. So this is, this is our first son in that box, and it was freaking awesome. So of course I'm going to put my other son in a box. <laughs> Completely different reactions. <laughs> totally not into it. And that was because the context wasn't anywhere near the same, right? It wasn't anywhere near the same. He didn't crawl into the box. He didn't discover the box. He didn't turn it on its side and walk in and look out the little plastic bubble on the side. No, my dad just put me in a box, right? It wasn't anywhere near the same experience. And when we think of the context of design, about being, uh, about being all about the device that somebody's on, we, we miss kind of the big picture. So that's really what I want to talk to you about today. It really, it can't be about the box. So what we want to do is start to look at what context actually is. What does it actually mean? And it includes a whole lot of different things. The device that you're using is one piece, but really there's a lot more to it. Time, location, proximity, uh, somebody's state of mind, their capabilities, the activity that they're engaged in, the things that they're interested in, and what kind of interaction they're having. There's a lot more to context than just somebody being on that device. Now, <coughs> excuse me. We've done a really good job with creating things that work depending on what device you're on. And we do that with responsive design. We've been doing that for, for years now. It's kind of a de facto standard. So we create things that look great on, on, a, on a desktop. We create a tablet version. And we create a mobile version. And everything is wonderful. And that's a really great way of dealing with device-related things. How does this design work well in, in different viewports? This is a question that people used to ask all the time. What resolutions do we design for? Right? How many people were, were doing web stuff at 640 by 480? Yes. This is a good room. How many, do you remember the day when it was suddenly like, oh, guys, I don't know if you know this, but we can design for 800 by 600 now. <laughs> that was like the day. That was magic. And then it went to 1024 by 768, and then Apple screwed everything up by going with their widescreen displays. 1366 by 768? What is that? Right? But now the, the device, uh, the, the different devices that we have, the resolutions, they're kind of like, they're not really infinite, but they're really, they might as well be. Right? So the only sane answer to this question, what resolutions do we design for, is all of them. Right? Really smart designers are asking this question now when we're dealing with responsive designs, and it's really about this. Not just what resolution, but what resolution ranges do we design for? Extra small glass, small glass, medium glass, large glass, extra large glass, extra extra large glass, when we're talking about if we were designing something for this. Uh, right? we, we deal with all of those ranges now, and that's phenomenal work. I love the things that we're doing with responsive design. <clears throat> Excuse me. We want to take a look at the content that we create and tweak it a little bit. So this is uh, the Clicktail Research Hub. And I love this. This was before we put a lot of effort into things. And I say we like I designed this or something. I didn't. Uh, but this was like a WordPress site that had a, a WordPress mobile theme on it so that their site could look pretty much exactly like everybody else's that had that same mobile theme. And I love this piece of content to receive all these useful resources simply complete the form to the right. 
which doesn't exist in this context. It's gone, right? That statement doesn't really make sense until you, until you see it here, where that subscription form is there, right? We need to transform this kind of stuff, and, and we do this from a content perspective. We need to think about it from a design perspective. But we need to create things that are more like this. So we transform simply complete the form to the right to be something more like simply complete the subscription form. The subscription form is now something that can just link to wherever the form is. It doesn't matter if it's at the top, the bottom, left or right-hand side. It doesn't matter. We've made this so that it now works better and adapts better to different contexts. Right? Make sense? Simple stuff, but it's, always, it's really easy to forget these kinds of things. So that's, that's the kind of thing that we do on the device. Um, but what about all these other things? Time, location, proximity. These are all really important things from a, a context perspective. Um, this is a site that we, we worked on and designed back in 2011 for UX Camp Ottawa. And one of the things that we kind of discovered as we were going through this uh, design and development processes, we were planning for, for transition points. And I don't mean like breakpoints, I mean transition points in kind of a timeline. Um, so we looked at this and said, you know, this is the header of the site, really big call to action, register now. And then we had two scenarios that we thought we needed to deal with. One was, well, what do we do when it's sold out? We don't want to have a big link that says register now and then somebody go and click that and say, oh, actually, no, right? Um, the other thing was, what happens on the day of the event? Well, on the day of the event, you can't register online anymore. You have to come on site to do it. So we actually uh, changed the header and got this set so that we could basically flip a switch. And we flipped a switch so that when it was uh, full or it was the day of the event, it turned into this so that it says, hey, great, you know, to receive updates, sign up for this instead. There was a, a reasonable call to action uh, that you know, you couldn't sign up anymore or you couldn't register anymore, so let's do something useful like this. So we started to think about that, like, oh, we can, we can do this little thing and just throw a switch based on certain conditions. Uh, we made it so that it worked, um, worked in a responsive way. <clears throat> when we were putting together the tablet version, right, the tablet version, we thought, great, this is, this is what we're going to do, and we got to designing the schedule page. And so we were thinking, here, people are going to be sitting at the conference on their iPads. Perfect. This is the design that we wanted to go with. Pretty straightforward. All the same content was there, but it was kind of arranged differently. Uh, we still recognize our sponsors. We have social sharing. We have uh, the schedule itself. And we've got our, our navigation. So we've got all these different chunks of content. Uh, and we were looking at it and saying, this is the, uh, the schedule page. Let's make this. Um, you know, really kind of straightforward, simple design. And we started saying, I, I caught myself, I said, let's make this so that when it's the day of the event and you come to the site on your iPad, instead of getting the home page, you get the schedule. And I thought, that's awesome. And then I thought, that's dumb. We shouldn't just do that for the iPad. Why would we just do that for the iPad version? It doesn't make any sense at all. We were thinking about the device and not about something bigger. The idea was, was sound, but we really shouldn't have done that just for the iPad. We needed to do that for the phone, and we needed to do, to do that for people that happened to be sitting there on their laptops as well. So what we did was we created a little script that basically said, on this day at midnight, when it becomes the day of the event, 
instead of showing, we did it in WordPress, instead of showing the home page, show this page instead. Day after the event, it just goes back, right? And we thought, this, now we're, we're starting to get onto something. We're starting to look at how content changes in its, its priority over time. And this was the original kind of sketch that I did, was like, how, how is this gonna work? And so we looked at all the different pieces of content that we had and said, well, what do we, you know, what do, we do that, with this? How does that, these different pieces of content, how do they change with their importance as time goes on? Now this is really, like, that's my sketch and horrible handwriting, so don't take photos of that. <laughs> take photos of this. Uh, what, we've, what we've turned these things into are things that we're calling context maps. And they're basically a design tool that lets you come up with different ideas on how you might actually approach the design for different contexts. So if we accept the fact that content priority might change over time, we can actually take that and, and map that out. So if we have content importance on the, the uh, vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis, uh, axis, we had for that conference, we had three distinct time periods. We had pre-event, we had the event itself, and we had the post-event, right? So we looked at all the different pieces of content and we mapped this out. So the schedule before the event, kind of irrelevant. It's not really all that important. But during the event, it's like the most important thing, and then after the event, back down to not being so important, right? Next piece of content, tweets about the event. Perfect. Before the event, kind of important because we want to build buzz. During the event, important, but not as important as the schedule. And afterwards, we kind of want to maintain some importance because uh, we want people to keep talking about the event. Photos, before the event, totally unimportant because we didn't have any photos because the event hadn't happened yet. So not important, leading up to it, a little bit important during the event, and then afterwards we thought, hey, we really want to have people relive the memories, so why don't we do that? Don't worry, there's more coming. You can wait till the end and take a photo of the last one. I'll tell you when, I'll tell you when. Uh, logistics and selling, super important beforehand. We're trying to sell this event out, right? Super important on the day of the event, kind of drops off, and then after the event, not important at all, really, right? Uh, speaker information. Important beforehand so people can know who's going to be, com be coming there to speak. Uh, during the event, maybe not so important because the speakers are right there, but then maybe afterwards, important again so that people can kind of connect afterwards. Does that make sense? The content that you have changes in its priority over time. All you're doing is putting yourself inside the mind of somebody that's attending the conference or trying to buy or whatever it is. These were the things that we kind of came up with and said, this is how our content should change over time. So how do we actually do something with that? Well, on the day of the event, schedule becomes almost the only thing on the page. We still incorporate the sharing stuff, but all, you know, some of the other things, they all kind of fade into the background. They were all still available. We still had a link that said go back to the full site so people could get to stuff if they were looking for blog articles and, and things that we had written. But this was kind of a, a moment for us where we said, this is how we need to drive this design. The, contact, uh, the, the content priority changes over time, and we want to take that into account in our, in our, um, in our work. Uh, so we started mapping it out, putting, putting percentages on it, and, and these are made up. You could completely do this in a different way, but what if we take that priority and dedicate a certain amount of, of screen real estate on the homepage? based on these priorities over time. So um, pre-event 
65% logistics and selling, 20% speaker info, 10% for tweets, 0% for schedule, photos, 5%. During the event, 0, 5, 10, 80, and 5. After the event, maybe it's 0, 15, 40, 5, and 40. How can we map this out? What does this mean doing in terms of our design? Now, we're not, we do this right now with editorial, right? We, we time posts and we do all of that. What we're talking about is creating systems that allow you to apply different layouts and flex pieces of content at specific times, right? So that's what we're talking about. So this is uh, Humana, a huge uh, healthcare insurance provider in the US. So the, I don't know if you guys know how healthcare insurance works in the US. Um, exactly, nobody really might understand that. But they can only sell health insurance at specific times of year. right? And so maybe during that time, they dedicate 65% of their, their screen real estate on the homepage to selling, 15% uh, <clears throat> on informing, and 20% on finding a provider. Uh, but maybe in non-selling season, they scale that back and they spend more of their effort, an extra 20% of their home, home page real estate on the, in, the inform goal that they have, right? So you can, you can do this and you can do this programmatically, right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, you can do it with editorial as well, but you can, you can definitely do this uh, programmatically. You can apply this idea of applying time to content uh, for any industry, uh, healthcare, travel, uh, financial, government, higher ed, it doesn't matter, it, it works. There are always time-based things where your content matters in different ways. And I, I encourage you to kind of explore that and, and see how you might um, have that influence your design. Now time wasn't enough for us. <coughs> we decided to do something like this. So this was, um, we, we actually got pretty granular right leading up to the event, so you can see the three, uh, three links in the navigation there. There's uh, the schedule, the event details, and the full site. We actually drilled it down a little bit further and said, okay, if it is kind of like the, the hours leading up to the event, instead of showing the schedule tab, let's show the logistics on how to get there, right? And then as you get closer to, to go time for the conference, Let's switch it to the schedule. So we did that from a time perspective, and then we thought, well, we should also, we could easily do this with, with location. So you get prompted with one of these really horrendously ugly, no understanding of why you want my location boxes. Um, and if you allowed it to happen, what we would do is say, if you're inside the building, we're going to give you the schedule. If you're outside the building or a certain distance away, we're gonna give you the logistics on how to get there, right? So it's just kind of about, it became about using or creating really smart defaults for, for what we were doing. So we created another uh, type of context map. Uh, we asked, asked all these different kinds of questions that were kind of location-based, things that were, where location was really important. What building are we in? How do I get there from the airport? Can I walk there? What's the nearest public transit stop? stop? Is the facility accessible to my wheel wheelchair? What entrance? How do I get there with public transit? Where can I park? All of those things. And we started to put those into a context map. So if this was where the event was, we created kind of this location-based uh, context map. So when you were located farther away on that event details page with all the logistics, we put airport information at the top and, and went down and got further granular. 
um, as, you, as you got closer further down the page. If you were really close and you were in the building when we showed you the logistics page or the, the event details, we put stuff about the building first and stuff about airports at the bottom. We weren't deciding to show and hide content because I know people kind of hate that, right? Like I look at my Facebook feed and I'm like, just show it to me in order, please. Like stop putting all these weird things up at the top. Um, so we weren't not showing pieces of content. We were just showing them in a different order depending on where somebody was. So this is a, a context map that really kind of takes a look at how contents, uh, uh, the priority of a content changes with respect to a low, to location. Again, you can do this in any industry. Um, this is a, a higher ed site, and we do things all the time. We've got these wonderful uh, campus maps, for example. Well, why don't we do something like this such that you know, maps can always live there in the top navigation, but what if somebody is going to this on their tablet or on their phone, and they're actually getting close to campus, and it's at a certain time of year? Maybe you do something like this so that you recognize how close they are, and you know that people are coming for, for, um, you know, for visits, so why not something like this, so that if you detect that somebody's in a particular location, or they're within, say, you know, two kilometers, 10 kilometers, whatever it is, that we do that. Maps and tours, next tour starts in 20 minutes, meet at the admissions office, whatever it is. There's, there's lots of different, uh, different things to explore here. I travel a lot, so I would love something like this. This is the, the United Mobile site. Um, when I go to the United Mobile site, when I'm in an airport, there's usually a pretty good reason for it, right? So why don't we do something like this, like, hey, you see that I'm at Washington Dulles Airport. Our customer service center is located at Gates A4, C26, and across from D15, or call us. Usually if I go to that site while I'm in the airport, and I know this is difficult to do because airports are always kind of moving around and stuff, so, um, but why don't, we, why don't we explore things like this? Put that piece of content in. You've geolocated me, I'm in the airport. That's probably some really, really useful content for me. Right. So the content changes with respect to location. Right. We can actually put in different content. <laughs> now, I, I do have to give you a warning here. Um, my uh, grandmother bought me a purple shirt one time for my birthday. And I told her how much I loved it. And that meant that Christmas I got another purple shirt. <laughs> and my next birthday I got another purple shirt. And I kept getting purple shirt after purple shirt after purple shirt. I didn't have a way to reset, right? And I, I said like, hey, I love purple shirts, and it was always purple shirts after that. I needed a way to kind of get out of that, uh, get out of that loop and out of that cycle. So any of this stuff that you're setting uh, from a, a contextual basis, if you're setting some kind of a preference, like hey, they want to see this first, there needs to be a way to get out, right? You've got to have a way to get out. Uh, so any saved contextual cues must be resettable. Uh, this is one that we use for, for proximity. So proximity is how close two things are with respect to one another with, without regard for their location, right? So proximity is about that, how, how close two things are together. So uh, content can actually change with respect to proximity, and I think about this kind of stuff for, for designing like, you know, smart, uh, smarter apps and things like that. So how can we change the content that we're showing somebody with respect to proximity. I envision things like this. <clears throat> Your friend Steve is at MCG. Your phone is safe. Let's say Steve was that kind of person that might take your phone, tweet something on your behalf, right? Your phone is safe because you know that Steve is away. 
right? Um, Denise just sat down for lunch at Chin Chin two minutes away, ask if you can join, right? Now there's a lot of trust that needs to happen for this to be okay. There's location-based stuff and then there's connections within, uh, you know, like these are trusted contacts within my contact or something like that or within your, uh, your address book. But if that was possible, which, I mean, it's possible, it just doesn't happen right now. Um, these kind of things become, become more possible. Ash, Donna, and Ruth are at Red Spice Road for your reservation. Let them know you're almost there because that's where they are and I'm 300 meters away. Let them know I'm coming, right? They can go ahead and get seated or, or go ahead and order. Um, your, your Twitter friend at Formulate is near. Get a photo together. Um, or Steve is nearby. Photo, uh, phone, auto lock engaged, right? Like, no. Um, I, I also think about this in terms of, of my own devices, the proximity of me to, say, my office. So when I'm you know, more than a kilometer away, I'm away from my office, I only want notices to come in on my phone. Right? Um, when I'm in the building, maybe I have multiple devices there, give me notices on every device so that I can choose. Um, but when I am like sitting at my desk, logged in, with two-factor authentication. Please stop giving me notices on every device that is around me. I'm sitting there, just put the notices on my Mac, right? That's all I want, things like that. And that's, that's proximity-related stuff, right? So how can we change the content, um, the, the, the content, the way that it's displayed, or the, the messages that we give just by understanding proximity? This is, this is a, another one. So most people know me for the work that we do in accessibility. We do tons of accessibility work and inclusive design. And this is uh, another one of my sites, um, Seize the Room. I write about speaking and, and teaching and things like that. So this, I don't know if you know this, on, on a Mac, you can highlight content and then there's a, if you bring up the context click, there's a speech, uh, speech function there. People with low vision might use this very often because they, might, you know, they might be magnifying the screen, their eyes get tired, they find a piece of content that they want to read, but they don't want to read it because it's going to be tiring for their eyes, so they'll look away and say, now that I've found what I want, you just read it to me, right? So it's good, good functionality, and, and um, it's built into, built into the Mac. I want you to see what that actually looks like, though, when somebody is actually magnified. So this is not magnified very high, it's about uh, 250%. Um, but watch what happens as I've now found this piece of content that I want to read, um, and I don't want to read it, I want to rest my eyes. Watch what happens as I bring up that menu. <clears throat> so I triple click to highlight that paragraph. I right click to bring up the menu. And look at how hard it is to actually get over to that little menu because I'm magnified. When you're magnified, a little tiny movement is actually pretty huge. Um, now, this is something that, that kind of really doesn't make any sense to me because the operating system should know that I'm magnified right now. So if it knows that I'm magnified, why doesn't it automatically take those drop downs or those flyouts and make them into something that's more like an expando contracto where it's, where it's actually there right in the line of, uh, in the line of sight, right? That, that contextual cue is already there because the computer knows that I'm magnified. So why, why doesn't it do that? I don't know why it doesn't do that. It should do something like that. So the, the display might change with respect to somebody's capabilities. Right? We could change the way something is displayed. Uh, we mess around with stuff all the time. Uh, this is, this is uh, a little example that we put together as a proof of concept 
for people that have maybe fine motor control or dexterity issues where they have difficulty clicking on small targets. And so we thought, well, one of the things that happens for, for people often is they'll, they'll miss the target. They might have a, a tremor or a shake, and so they miss the target. So we did, we did this just as a prototype, like, oh, I'm on the go button. Oh, I missed it. No, no, you didn't. No, okay, just, like, we could do this, right? I'm not saying this is a great idea. I don't, I'm not saying I want to see all of you go and build a, a growing button. Actually, I kind of do want to see you all <laughs> go put growing buttons on your forms. But we could build in some contextual cues of how somebody's actually performing on the site, and we could detect misses. Now, we'd, we'd have to do a lot of work with this and research to make sure it's not somebody just, like, some people like to highlight content and they click on content to read it, so you'd have to do some really careful sleuthing around this. But if they manage to be able to hit it much easier on the second size, then why don't we just then make, that, make it that size for all their buttons from now on, right? Why not? So the, the uh, display could change with respect to somebody's capabilities. Uh, I don't know if you, if you use Google Maps uh, very much, but I do, and I love, I love this. Um, they actually change the way the map is displayed based on how fast I'm going. Am I walking or am I driving, right? And so they, they set this up so that when you're, when you're actually at a stoplight or you're parked, the, the, the context or the zoom level of the map is very zoomed in, but as you drive faster, as you're going faster, the, the map zooms out to give you more heads up to see what's ahead. It's, it's brilliant uh, little design based on the activity that somebody is engaged in at, <clears throat> at that particular time, right? You could do exactly the same kind of thing. Uh, last, uh, last thing I want you to, to think about. We've been kind of playing around with this idea of something called the minimum viable interaction. And, you know, there's, like, everything is the minimum viable something something these days, but this one, I think, is, is kind of like a, a useful design tool. The idea behind the minimum viable interaction is what is the least or most fundamental piece of information or functionality that somebody needs to be able to take, to take action or to complete some kind of interaction. Um, and, and this, to me, is kind of like a, a really uh, useful concept when you're, when you're thinking about things like this. Now, um, we, we want to make things actionable as early as possible or allow people to make decisions as early as possible. So home screen notifications are getting much better, right? Now, now on your home screen notifications, when you get a, a message, a text message from somebody, it says slide to reply, right? It understands that you've slid on a, or that you've touched a message, and that's what it takes you in there. Uh, if, it's a, if it's an app and you tap on it, it will actually take you into the app, right? There's, there's smart things. <coughs> Can you design things so that you don't even need to take this out of your pocket to be able to understand what's happening? Can you make it so that you don't have to unlock your phone or so that you don't even need to open the email? And we hack this kind of stuff all the time. Uh, one of, one of, our, um, one of our, our, our teammates that works for us, she is brilliant at doing really simple things with her email subject lines. So her email subjects always start with info, colon, whatever, request, colon, whatever, urgent, colon, whatever. Um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, I can't remember any of them now, but they're all, like, you know what action to take just based on her email subject lines. Like, this is something that can wait, or this is something where she's requesting something of me, or, or we, and we, we just started using it internally with all of the people that we, that we email. Um, so it makes 
that email <clears throat> actionable without actually having to, um, to, to, to take action on it uh, in, in kind of a more deep way. We can really get a quick sense of what needs to happen. Um, notification messages from, from services when you get a text message to confirm. We get the, uh, the little <laughs> excuse me, the little codes. All kinds of, of great services see the text message come up and it says, I can see my code right on there. So I get the notification at the top of the screen or it's there on my lock screen. I can use the code without actually having to, to unload it. So like, here's your Google account verification number, G blah, 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 blah. I remember signing up for something else one time and it was, it was like, welcome to the, uh, the wonderful service that I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to name them, but it had a really long message and it said, here's your actual code, dot, dot, dot. And it was like just out of reach, yeah? So thinking of that like a, from, a minimum vi from a minimum viable interaction perspective, I think is, is useful. <coughs> How can we get people to take action and complete their goal uh, quicker? Um, uh, so I fly a lot because I speak at a lot of conferences. This stuff drives, drives me up the wall because here's a, a, set of, uh, a, a set of results, search results for a flight, and you can see right now they are sorted by price, and of course the price is right up at the top of each record. Yeah, makes sense? Um, but when I say that I want to sort by departure time, why is the departure time still buried down inside the record? I mean, I know why. Right? Hey, we wrote this thing once, people can find it. When I say I want to sort by shortest flight, the duration is buried deep inside the record. And that just, that doesn't make sense to me. What I would really like to do is change the display of some information with respect to the things that I say, like literally expect, express that I'm interested in. When you have a set of search results and someone says sort by this thing, what can you do to surface that thing? When they say uh, sort by, um, you know, if you, if you had a, a file list or something like that, and you said, I, I want to sort by images or something and put the images in order, well, maybe we make in that search results, we make the images bigger because somebody has said they're really interested in the images, right? There's lots of, lots of things that we could do. So I, I also like to, to think about this from, a, from an accessibility perspective, and this is a, a huge boon. People, that, uh, that are completely blind and use a screen reader, they often rely on headings to get through a page. So they'll go through all the headings that are there, and they, they use that as a mechanism to scan the page. <coughs> well, if we know that, if we know that, why don't we do something like this so that when somebody says, I want to sort by departure time, we actually take that departure time and bring it and put it up in the heading. So now the heading is not just about that this is $1,397 total cost. It's about that it's $1,397 total cost, and it's a 10 a.m. departure time. So now, somebody this has said, I am really interested in departure time. As they're going through the page, heading by heading, they happen to be blind, looking for a flight. I'm interested in departure time. They hear 1397, departing at 10. Nope, I can't leave that early. Next one, next one, next one. Then, if they find one that's a reasonable departure for time for them, then they dig deeper into that record. Right? Same thing with shortest flight. Why don't we bubble that information up to the top? Right? Let's put that stuff in headings and, and help people discover it earlier. So I think we can do that with respect to, to people's interests. I also think there's fun things that we could do. I don't know uh, what, 
I think this is kind of a weird idea that I had one day, but um, does anybody use, uh, use Gmail? Have you played with the settings at all? Like, here's, here's a comfortable, cozy, and compact. Compact is, is actually designed for smaller screens, but it's actually tough to read. Um, cozy is like, I don't know what cozy setting is for email, um, but it's like it's between comfortable, which has a lot of a lot more white space in it, and and cozy, I guess, is somewhere in between. This to me is something where, and so I've I've done work with uh, with kind of a productivity coach, and and she said, listen, you've got these weird cycles in your day where you're at your most creative, and and this was like five six years ago, and and we kind of mapped it out that I'm I'm most creative. Uh, early in the morning, like if I'm up between 4 and 7 a.m., I get some really great work done there because I've got lots of energy and I'm kind of at my, at my best. Um, but between 7 and 9, when we're getting the kids out the door, my head's fuzzy, it's not a good time. Um, when it's you know, 9, 9 a.m. to about 10.30, another boost of energy and, and good creative time for me. And then I start to get tired, right? Well. This idea that I have is that you know at certain times of the day or when I'm in a certain state of mind, I kind of want to make email harder to do. Like when I should be really doing my creative work, what I want to do is make Gmail suck so that I don't actually do it. Right? Gmail is rewarding because all these cool things happen in it. But if, if I should be doing something else, why don't we set this up so that at a specific time, Gmail changes to compact mode so that it's really difficult to do email or it's uncomfortable to do email. I don't know if that's a good idea. I also don't know if it's a, if it's a bad idea. Um, but I think it's the kind of thing that we can start to experiment with as we, as we move forward. Um, this, have you ever seen this before, the Wong Baker faces pain rating scale? I, I kind of think of the same, same kind of idea. How do we design for people that are in different stages of, of pain? And it could be physical, but it could also be um, you know, from, a, from a mental perspective. Uh, my friend Eric Meyer does great, uh, great work talking about compassionate design and understanding the state of mind that somebody is in. So he talks about uh, when he's visiting, um, trying to get to the hospital to see his sick daughter. Uh, what kind of mental state is he in? And how can we take this and turn this into a context map where we're putting interesting pieces and useful pieces of content in place at the right time for people depending on the, the state of mind they're in? Now, I don't know how we determine what state of mind somebody is in. Uh, I've seen things before that where there's like um, emotion, it's like an emotion sensor, but it basically looks at your last hundred tweets, for example, and are you, is there more smiley faces or frowny faces, right? Now that's like kind of voodoo. Um, but we might get to the point where we can start to understand sentiment a little bit better. So what kind of, what kind of changes could we make to understand pain and anxiety? So if we can do all of that, I want you to think about those things and what context actually means, right? What defines it? Time, location, proximity, the device, state of mind, capabilities, activity, interests, the interaction that you're having with something. Right? You might have heard this before, that content is king. And people kind of come back and say, no, no, no. Not content is king. Context is king. I think what we're talking about here is that content in the right context is actually king. It can't be about the box. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. 
For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.